This is Brand and New from the International Trademark Association. This podcast series explores changes and dynamics in the legal world, now and tomorrow, with a focus on intellectual property. Welcome to Brand and New. I am Audrey Dove. Business wise, in a complex, challenged global economy, Africa is more on the move than ever. This region is still the fastest growing continent of all from an economic perspective. The World Economic Forum pointed out last year that six of the 10 fastest growing economies in the world are all in Africa, and the continent's average annual GDP growth is projected to remain at a robust average of 6% until 2023. How does this unstoppable growth translate from an intellectual property perspective? What are the continent's strengths and challenges that can explain where Africa sits right now on the IP world, both legally and from a market perspective. Our guest today is not a first-timer with Brennanew. To discuss these issues, we decided to invite again Brenda Kaare, who already discussed these issues with us a little over two years ago. As a reminder, Brenda is the founder of the law firm BW Kaare, Lawyers for Africa, based in Harare, Zimbabwe. Since its beginning, the law firm has focused its practice on IP issues. Brenda is also a regular speaker on topics related to IP for major international organizations, such as the World Intellectual Property Organization, the International Trademark Association, and the African Regional Intellectual Property Organization, also called ARIPO. Brenda, welcome back to Brennanew. Thank you for inviting me, Audrey. So the World IP Organization published its 14th Global Innovation Index back in September with this year's edition dedicated to tracking innovation through the COVID-19 crisis and exploring several key indicators, including trademark-related data, to identify trends in innovation across 132 countries. Africa is very much discussed in the WIPO report with Mauritius, South Africa, Tunisia, and Morocco ranked as the most innovative countries and trademark generating countries in Africa. Brenda, what do you think are the most salient innovation strengths in these countries in particular, and maybe of the continent more broadly, which put them above expectations in particular given the global pandemic and the challenges it brings for businesses, for brands, and for consumers. Now, this was quite an interesting report, Global Innovation Index, or GII, uh, as I will refer to it. Uh, they looked at a number of aspects. I would say there are seven pillars, and I will indicate the quickly the pillars that they looked at. Institutions, human capital and research, infrastructure, market sophistication, business sophistication, knowledge and technology outputs, and creative outputs. Well, you see, these were quite thorough. And so it was quite interesting that the countries which you mentioned, Mauritius, Morocco, South Africa, and Tunisia, actually did a very good job in improving in each of the pillar or areas. The objective was to rank high in all seven pillars. Of course, they didn't quite do uh, that well, but they actually did improve in most. In some pillars, some countries, one or the other country did very well. They were not completely across the board in terms of which pillars they were. But looking at the report, uh, the relative success of Mauritius in the GII 
of ranking 52nd among all the 132 economies, first among the 27 economies in sub-Saharan Africa, was quite a feat, particularly considering the fact that Mauritius is basically an island. It's not, its population is not as large as a number of African states. Um, its land area is not. So uh, it was quite a feat for it to have achieved this. And their ranking had something to do with the institutions, market sophistication, and creative outputs being the important pillars that they that actually rank quite well in. On the other hand, South Africa, which is often looked upon by most of us in Africa uh, as uh, one of the most developed economies, particularly after or maybe at the same time as Nigeria, they actually ranked second in the region with uh, Mauritius being first. So I thought looking at what they scored, their two areas was market and business sophistication that they ranked high in. And Tunisia performed best in human capital and research. But what I will say across all of them, if you looked at their strengths and weaknesses that were identified in the report, education or the uh, contribution by government to education seemed to have been a factor for all of the four, to the extent that government invests in education of its people seem to have been an important factor. Looking at each of these states, political and operational stability and venture capital investors, such as in Mauritius, was very important. You can have political instability, but if it does not affect the operations of your manufacturing and other areas of production, you can still do well economically. Uh, so that's important, I believe. Industrial designs and trademarks by origin and high-tech manufacturing was a, a strength for Morocco. Uh, market capitalization and domestic credit to private sector in South Africa was important. An ease of starting a business, high-tech and creative goods exports it was a factor in Tunisia. So for all these, I'd have to say that when you look through the report, you'd have to look at the pillars and then look at the strengths and weaknesses to ascertain what were the key factors that uh, led those preparing the report to state their rank, to, to consider these four countries as significant in terms of rank. And yes, I would say that the continent's large population of youth and broad engagement in social media, use of mobile money services have served to drive economic growth, even while trying to cope and survive in, in the pandemic. Brenda, the intergovernmental ARIPO, headquartered in Harare, in Zimbabwe, appointed a new director early 2021. So ARIPO is a general organization it's, which is in charge of granting and administering IP titles on behalf of its member states. The trademark system made huge progress since its inception. There is, however, great potential that is yet to be harnessed when it comes to rights enforcement. Aripo announced the launch of targeted awareness campaigns as well as workshops and seminars for targeted groups such as SMEs and chambers of commerce in each of the member states. Could you please tell us more about these initiatives and the opportunities for member states to foster healthy and flourishing IP environments. The repo indeed has made tremendous uh, progress over the over 40 years that it's been in existence. And I do believe now there are 21 member states. We still have one that is not very active. 
when you say enforcement, that's a sort of different thing from the awareness campaign. The campaign that they have been involved in for quite a number of years has been to reach out to not only existing users to continue to encourage them to utilize the system, but also to potential users, that being your small businesses. And in these instances, they have tried to reach out to them and explain the system, but to make small businesses, medium-sized businesses and enterprises understand the financial and economic value to actually registration of IP, being trademarks, patents, and all of the various aspects of intellectual property. So they have pretty good success there, but there's still a lot that needs to be done. The governments are doing their part, but they need to take it a step further. They almost need systems of incubation where you take on uh, a few businesses as prototypes and provide them with all the backup assistance for, let's say, a period of time, maybe three years of its first existence. Or then you might take a medium-sized business that is engaged in commerce and you give them some assistance for a period of time. Maybe in their instance, you only need one where you track them and follow them and assist them along the way. And at the same time, you then need to look at the larger ones because believe it or not, there are a number of very successful businesses who really don't use the IP system. And so you need to reach out at maybe a collaborative effort, a repo and governments and in your chambers of commerce and your trade promotion organizations and other stakeholders in the economy in the countries of Africa to say, we are going to establish a program that's going to focus on ticking up the number of registrations in every country in Africa. Governments are now understanding that IP does affect their economies. But now the question is, how can you be effective in changing the scenario? With respect to enforcement now, that's a different problem with the systems. There has to be a concerted effort now for the members of ARIPO and joining together with members of OAPI to make sure that all legislation, the court systems and so forth, takes as a priority enforcement. You know, there's an old saying that, you know, justice delayed is justice denied. So if you go through administrative process or court process and ridiculous delays, well, you may as well. Can the system really help you then? I think that you have to make certain, first of all, that you have legislation in place, that the legislation is adequate and it's backed up by government enforcement on whether it's police or other areas of law enforcement and the court system. And it needs to function systematically and efficiently and in a timely way. Constituting a, a world first in a field that has traditionally been hostile to artificially intelligent inventors, South Africa's Patent Office granted a patent in July 2021 to an invention created by an AI system. The invention that received the go-ahead is for a system of interlocking food containers. And while South Africa patent award is certainly trailblazing, it also received some backlash from international IP experts. So back in 2019, you mentioned AI as the biggest coming challenge and opportunity from an IP perspective. How do you interpret this decision 
by the South African Patent Office and what does it mean for South Africa and maybe for Africa more generally? There is a lot of excitement uh, over this decision and many people thinking that it is now something that we can say is in the right direction or the right step for AIs. It's certainly progressive. But at the same time, I'd have to agree with some of the criticism by lawyers in South Africa. We need to be careful about what does this really mean. Bad facts make bad law. In this instance, yeah. there was a, a certain problem here. First of all, it was on an administrative level. In other words, it was done by the what we would call the registrar within the administrative process and not done by a court of law looking at a contentious or a dispute among parties. It was done by the office, and that's significant. The office decisions can be quite significant. South Africa has a particular law that requires that there be an inventor, a human person, basically. And in this instance, that law was determined by the administrative office that that law was really superseded by the PCT uh, treaty that South Africa was a part of, and that they really did not have to make any inquiry into the owner or the inventor of this particular invention. They never addressed the key and most important aspect is determination of inventor and whether that is a critical or important determination before a patent can be granted. I believe there is merit to the arguments by the South African lawyers that this is a very, you need to tread lightly on this. <laughs> you need to not say that because of this decision, you are now in the clear in terms of if you are an owner of an AI or you want an AI to have ownership of a patent or as an inventor. INTA is a global association representing more than 30,000 brand owners and professionals dedicated to supporting trademarks and related intellectual property to foster consumer trust, economic growth, and innovation. Over the last two years, Africa has been adopting cryptocurrencies faster than its global counterparts, and countries such as Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa, and Tanzania are ranked in the top 20 of the 2021 Global Crypto Adoption Index. Two years ago, you mentioned the dark side of cryptos for African customers. Are they now more convinced about the potential benefits of this technology and therefore on board with blockchain and cryptocurrencies today? Or is this only due to isolated investors and businesses? I think that's important for us to separate blockchain and crypto. Yes, there has been more use and certainly since our last interview together, there has been progress in terms of awareness and use of both blockchain and cryptocurrencies. But as you are aware, in recent months, an ongoing sort of thing, there has been discussion about the instability of cryptocurrency. And I believe that this is a result really of people speculating rather than using cryptocurrencies in commerce, which is really supposed to be the use of a currency. But there has been more interest in an uptake of blockchain successfully. It has been proven in certain industries 
to keep better track and avoid corruption and so forth and things such as mining. That is going to take time, but the blockchain technology itself is certainly showing promise. In a number of African states, uh, it has been used by industries. So there's potential there. And cryptocurrency still has potential. And I know that I did mention the dark side, but I would say that the dark side to which I referred was the illegal use of the currency blockchain because of the fact that you can hide the identity much more effectively is something that can be better used by criminals. But again, the technology is advancing such that in the regulatory process is looking into this more, that the dark side is less of a problem than the trust issues, the level of confidence. Do you want to start using Bitcoin when you don't know what the value is for sure? Will it drop significantly overnight as it has done? So I think those are more of the issues now, but certainly African countries are on board with it. But the problem, again, is with government. African governments are hesitant and reluctant to adopt it as a central currency because obviously of the lack of control that they would have. And, and they look to the current currencies that they have within their countries. They can control it. They can measure to some extent. Counterfeiting is undoubtedly an enormous issue across Africa with Lagos in Nigeria, Nairobi in Kenya, and Porto Novo in Benin being the three main ports of entry for counterfeit goods into the continent. Particularly worrying these days is the issue of fake pharmaceuticals being passed off as safe generics or even the actual pharmaceutical products. In 2020, The World Health Organization estimated that 70% of drugs in Nigeria are so-called second-generation goods, as opposed to genuine new drugs. Having in mind the current global pandemic, Brenda, what are the efforts made to limit the incoming flow of counterfeiting drugs by local governments, international enforcement agencies, or even professional or consumer organizations? There has been quite a lot of focus. You know, there's a special website even in Kenya, which tracks and deals with counterfeit. Places like Zimbabwe, there is uh, a control of counterfeits, particularly those that are coming across borders through Zimra, which is the Zimbabwe Revenue Authority, because there's a, a knowledge and understanding now that counterfeiting is bad, not just for business, but for governments because of lack of revenue collection and things such as sales tax, uh, duties on imported products, and all sorts of other revenue, even in terms of income tax from employees who are often not uh, employed when it comes to counterfeit goods. So there is a concerted effort going on. And this effort is in each country has a, a legislation just about throughout the continent. There are quite a number of still, because you have to remember how big the continent is. <laughs> it is huge, but there are a significant number of countries which have uh, appropriate and adequate legislation dealing with it. And they're tightening their border control. But again, this requires a tremendous effort to tighten border control because it requires resources. You're not looking at just simply by air transport. You're looking at ground transport. People crossing borders every single day, thousands and millions of people. So it's very hard to control. 
And so you need, again, a collaborative effort. In some countries, they simply don't have the resources. What you have to have there is collaborative effort with the private sector, trade organizations, and others who are working together to not only stop, but they have to identify in advance uh, and share information. That's going on to some extent. In a recent case in Zimbabwe, you know, we had the Kenyan authorities who alerted the Zimbabwean authorities of potential counterfeit goods, and they were able to stop the uh, containers that were coming through by road, and they were able to identify them and contact the agent who's registered on behalf of the foreign owner, and they were able to do something about these counterfeit goods. With respect to drugs, I would say it's swift. Anytime anybody notifies the appropriate agent, which is the Ministry of Health, for example, in Zimbabwe and in other countries, there is usually an immediate action taken uh, to remove counterfeit drugs. And so we have much more business and consumer awareness. We have a greater, I should say, respect of governments and others in law enforcement, of lobbying of professionals or consumer organizations. And they're giving much more weight. Their complaints are giving much more weight than ever before. Yes, there's a lot being done, but we still need a lot more to be done. I think we would have the adequate response from the judiciary and law enforcement. But the question is, right at the detection stage, what can we do to identify counterfeits and eradicate them and make the process of even bothering to present these types of things less profitable and more risky for the people who are actually engaged in it? Brenda, now I have a few rapid-fire questions for you. What's the most disruptive innovation in Africa in 2021? Digitalization. And I'm looking at digitalization as including such industries that have now popped up as fintech, insurtech, and agritech, as well as blockchain and AI. You look at these um, tech businesses, these underserved populations now have the potential access through mobile money platforms, such as the M-Pesa in Kenya and EcoCash in Zimbabwe and a number of other African states that now have mobile money platforms. And so all sorts of services are popping up. And this is going to be and is the main disruptive innovation in Africa. The main legal challenge in the near future for brand owners operating in Africa and beyond, maybe? The main legal issue now coming up is going to be data protection or privacy. Some of these platforms that have been popping up through digitalization, they're going to be pretty much infringing on the rights of individuals to privacy. And data is almost today the new gold mine. People who can get data can use data to promote goods and services, to gain and market and succeed with services and goods to consumers. A word that would summarize the last year and the one you expect for 2022. Well, I would give a lot of thought to that. For 2021, compassion. And maybe in some instances, it's a result of enlightened self-interest, which was a term that was used many years ago to suggest that we went through a pandemic. Everything that was normal was taken away from us. And it was indiscriminate in affecting people everywhere. 
in every class, in every level. We learned that our fellow human being must be treated with compassion and understanding. And we ourselves, whether we be successful or less than successful, we need to pull together and be compassionate about that. And looking forward to 2022, I would say hope that we will embrace optimism over despair because we're now going into the third year and we're still feeling very uncertain, or at least I'm thinking that we're all feeling quite uncertain about what is going to happen. But yet we are pushing forward. Thank you, Brenda. And my very last question, the last book you read and that you would recommend. This is sort of interesting because we have been locked down and have not gone out. And I did read a book, I'll Never Walk Alone, and that was an autobiography of Shirley Verrett with Christopher Brooks uh, being the writer and uh, author with her. She is now deceased, and she was an opera singer. And as I listened to that and, and thought all about our current innovations of IA, I had to wonder to myself, what will theaters be like in the future? Who will be the copyright owner or the a person entitled to some works that may duplicate hers or better? It's sort of an improved or invented song. <laughs> Where will we be? Uh, just to look at books themselves and to look at uh, the artistic talent that's out there and what will happen to it all. I, I read her book. It's I recommend it to anyone who has particularly an interest in the arts and uh, opera in particular, because she was quite well known and she was able to overcome so many obstacles. But basically, she had a gift. The question is today, as we look at AI, are we now saying machines have that same gift and they are entitled to protection? Thank you so much, Brenda. Well, thank you, Audrey. I certainly I enjoyed this just as much as our first interview. Me too. My guest today was Brenda Kari, the founder of law firm BW Kari, Lawyers for Africa. Thank you for listening to Brand and New, brought to you by the International Trademark Association. Be sure to tune in every two weeks on Tuesday for new episodes. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe and share it. We are always looking for new people to discover brand and new. And to learn more about INTA, its resources and events, please visit www.inta.org.